This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this special bonus episode of Once Upon a Crime. All of you who follow true crime cases probably have a handful, or at least a couple, that stay in your mind long after you learn about them. One true crime story I never forgot took place in Boston, Massachusetts in 1989. On October 23rd of that year, 29-year-old Charles Stewart placed a 911 call to report that he and his wife Carol had been carjacked, driven to a secluded section of the city, robbed, and shot. A citywide manhunt for the assailant began, but from the start, police were suspicious about Charles Stewart's story. Stewart was gravely wounded, but his wife, seven months pregnant with their first child, died, as did their unborn baby. The series of events that unfolded afterward would captivate the city of Boston and the nation. A new podcast produced by the Boston Globe and presented in association with HBO Max, titled Murder in Boston, revisits this true crime case and provides never-before-heard details of the crime, the perpetrator, and the havoc it wreaked on the city of Boston. Adrian Walker was a new reporter working for the Boston Globe at the time Charles Stewart's 911 call shook the city. It's a story that has resonated with him personally as a journalist and a citizen of Boston. He hosts the new podcast, Murder in Boston, and along with a team of Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporters, unveils explosive new findings that change the narrative of a story long cemented in the city's lore. So I am pleased now to welcome the host of Murder in Boston, Adrian Walker, to the show. Welcome, Adrian. Thanks for having me. This is one of those true crime stories from history that if you lived during that time, you probably remember it pretty vividly. I remembered it. Um, as a matter of fact, when I got the uh, invitation to to interview you, I, I read like the first sentence or two, and I, I know exactly what this one is. <laughs> I know exactly what this story is. I didn't remember the details, but you know, it's one of those ones that stay with you. And this happened, like I said in the intro, in 1989. So... Um, I did give a brief summary of the intro. I wasn't sure if I should give any spoilers, so I'm going to leave that up to you. But if you can, will you tell listeners about the podcast Murder in Boston? There's quite a lot about this case, and there's also a lot of twists and turns in this story. Well, Murder in Boston tells the story of the murder of a woman named Carol DeMady Stewart. Uh, She was murdered in Boston in October of 1989. Uh, She was coming from a birthing class at a big Boston hospital called Brigham and Women's. And the story that was told was that a black assailant had jumped in. She was with her husband. Shocked they were a white suburban couple. The story that was told was that a black assailant had jumped into their car and shot them both. She died. He survived. And that turned out to not be what happened at all. It turned out that her husband uh, was the assailant. He murdered her and shot himself. And Murder in Boston tells the story of how that happened the search for this black assailant, how black neighborhoods in Boston were turned upside down over the next couple of months, leading to a a pretty dramatic ending. If I can uh, 
get a little bit of background about you, how you got involved in this story. Number one, um, how did it come to your attention? And then I guess the second part of that question would be, why did you decide to focus this podcast on this story like so many years later? So in October of 1989, I was a new reporter at the Boston Globe. I had been at the Globe for uh, five months uh, when this story broke. And, you know, it was uh, such an explosive story in Boston at the time, you know, because of the way it tapped into so many things, fears about crime and fears about, you know, and racial tensions and all kinds of things like that, that it was a story that really stayed with people. It stayed with the people who lived it on the ground and it stayed with the people who covered it as well, me included. Uh, over the years, I went from being a reporter, I became a columnist, but it was a story I would revisit at every opportunity, as say when key members of people who figured in the story died or what other things happened or on, on anniversaries. And uh, it was just a story that I stayed obsessed with. And, you know, in the early days, relatively early in the pandemic in 2021, we had a team that was doing stories about police misconduct and so on in Boston. And we started thinking about the fact that there was a long history of this misconduct. And you could trace it in a way back to the Stewart case. And that was sort of the genesis of, of the podcast. That was where the, the idea for this project came from. There's so much to talk about in this case. Of course, you have the crime story, which is already pretty shocking. And then you have the details of it and how it unfolds, which I think was surprising to a lot of people at the time, exactly how, like you said, how it um, ended up. But some of the elements in the story that um, I felt were really well detailed in the podcast were um, about the types of crimes and the elements of a crime story that receive the most attention. It's like every decade they have a crime of the century, right? Depending on where you're at, right? So yes. um, there's lots of things that go into that, like what the media picks up on, number one, right? Because that's where people are going to get their information, but also the public. What does the public kind of grasp onto? Like, what is it they pay attention to? And also what kind of crimes do law enforcement put the most time and resources to, right? So how did all of that, just kind of in a snapshot, it inform this story and, and how it was, I guess, initially when it first happened, how it was covered? You know, what all of us remember from covering it was that from the very beginning, it felt different. From the very beginning, it felt huge. And remember, this is at a time when there was a lot of crime in Boston. Uh, Boston was having record numbers of homicides. You know, it wasn't unusual sad to say, for people to get murdered. But this one tapped a nerve right away. You could feel it. And it was because, you know, it was the whole aspect that she was seven months pregnant. You know, they were coming from this birthing class at a place where a lot of people had gotten their maternity care. There was the whole racial aspect of it, you know, black assailant, white couple, and all of that. There was the mayor of Boston the night of the shooting, before Carol Stewart had died, saying, we're going to put every available detective on this case. It was just like this outsized, huge explosion right from the beginning. I mean, that makes sense. If you think about it, it's like, oh, what do they say? It's, it's, it's always the husband kind of thing, you know? But it, it's always to me, it's like, if the woman is pregnant and the whole scenario of this where the couple both get shot, and yet she's the one that dies and the husband lives. Now, that's already a, a big clue. Yeah, but what I would say about that, though, is that I think that in 1989, this idea that the husband always did it was less ingrained. You know, this okay. is pre-Nancy Grace. <laughs> this is pre-crime TV, right. you know. There you go, yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't think people thought about it. This is pre-OJ. 
And, you know, I don't think people thought about it quite the same way. I mean, and and to be sure, there are people, you know, I talk to people who say, oh, my wife said right away the husband did it. But it wasn't uh, it wasn't the obvious assumption that it would be now. Yeah, because I did I did pick up on that, too, in the podcast that he was looked at pretty sympathetically also because he was pretty badly injured. Right. He was. Well, that was a big piece of it. Yes. I mean, when you talk to police and law enforcement people about why he wasn't pursued as a suspect more aggressively, the thing they'll always say is, look how badly wounded he was. You wouldn't think that if you were going to shoot yourself, you would almost kill. I mean, he almost killed himself. But to me, that just means he didn't know what he was doing. Right. Exactly. That was a question I was going to ask, because, of course, we we can't know because of the way that, you know, that things end up. But we don't know a whole lot about him. So when you were you know, reporting on this story, it seems like there might have been like two sides, because on the one hand, like on paper, he looked great. Right. He looked like just this, you know, successful guy who's married and going to have a baby and, you know, all of this. But there was also this kind of undercurrent to this shady side of him. So did that not come out until everything kind of was figured out? Or was that something that you guys were picking up on as you were investigating this? When we were investigating it, you know, back in 89 and early 90, there was no hint of that. There was no hint of any tension between them. Uh, Nobody who knew them claimed professed to have any clue of why things would have happened the way they did. And there wasn't really much sense that he was shady. I mean, it came out very late you know, post everything unraveling that, you know, mm-hmm. he had been, you know, chasing other women and thinking about getting separated and all of that. But nobody knew that at the time. So what were the major elements of the story as you were looking at, say, you know, back in 2020, 2021, what were the major elements of the story that you felt were the most important to present to listeners as they were going to be learning about the story, maybe for the first time? You know, the thing that really struck me was that it, would, it had been such a huge story in its time, but that even among people in Boston, it had been, you know, almost forgotten. You know, three quarters of the people in Boston didn't live here then, didn't live through it. And, it you know, it was a chance to kind of unearth this history. And, and that was important. The fact that it still reverberates in the lives of the people who live through it. You know, there are thousands of people you talk to mm-hmm. who really, you know, still carry this with them. And that was important, too. I mean, to me, in a way, the true crime element of it was the least interesting part of it. Mm-hmm. Well, what, what I was more interested in was the way was the ripple effect it's had in the city over 30 years. Yeah, because that's what I was going to bring up next was I thought the podcast really highlighted uh, in, in part the history and the politics of the city and what was going on in the city yeah. at the time and all of those things and how that played a part in this story. So can you talk a little bit about that? Boston is a city that is notorious for having a long history of, of serious racial strife. And this crime really, uh, really tapped into that. I mean, you know, we go back to court order busing in 1974, which had which became this huge, you know, confrontation between black and white neighborhoods, between places like South Boston, which are white and Roxbury. There were kids on school buses, you know, getting rocks thrown at them. There were you know horrible things that happened. Uh, you know, black families moved out of predominantly white neighborhoods and all of that tension, you know, it, it led to 10 years of racial violence and all of that was still in the air. And I believe it's part of the reason Chuck Stewart was so so able to sell this story. You know, it was there were a lot of white people in the city 
who were really willing to believe the worst that, you know, a black person would jump into the car and do all of this stuff. And, it, you know, and there is, you know, sort of this whole backdrop to it. If you think about the way that he said it occurred, it really didn't make any sense. I mean, yes, there was a lot of crimes, everything like that, but it, I mean, to jump in a car and have them drive you away and all this kind of thing. Of course, again, we're looking at it, the lens now, people that are really very immersed into true crime cases and saying that doesn't make any sense. But of course, you know, this was something that was, like you said, so many years ago because of the tension that was going on and everything that had happened may have just people just ran with that story. What's interesting is that the first detectives who interviewed him, the first detectives on the case immediately suspected him. They interviewed him in the hospital, in his hospital bed. They didn't think his story made any sense. They drove the route he'd gone. They didn't understand why he kept saying he didn't see anybody and couldn't get any help. There were just there were just a lot of holes in the story. And I think law enforcement just ignored it and fixated on this narrative he'd sold. So there were quite a few twists and turns in this case, the way it unfolded. Do you remember how you reacted as because you were reporting on this as it happened in real time? Do you remember? Was it shocking? I mean, do you remember how you reacted to you know learning the truth about this this case? Well, I think we may as well say what happened, which is that on January 4th, 1990, after he had been exposed as the murderer, Chuck Stewart jumped off the Tobin Bridge here in Boston. And, uh, you know, I remember walking into the newsroom that morning in absolute shock. I mean, his brother had gone to the police the night before to kind of finger him as the murderer. And uh, no, I mean, I didn't see that coming at all. I mean, it, it was it was a very odd investigation because, you know, the murder happens in late October. There are two black men over time who get identified as prime suspects, but they never charged. It never seems like there's any real evidence against them. And uh, so there were a lot of questions about what was going on, but gosh, the the ending certainly took me by surprise, and I think it took most people by surprise. What was the name of the gentleman who who was uh, the second person? Willie that, Bennett. Um, Willie Bennett. Yes, yes. Uh, I knew that you know they had this suspect, and I knew that I think I re- recalled that he had somehow identified him as 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 the shooter, but. In the podcast this morning, I listened to this part where they have the audio of him talking about his identification of of Willie Bennett. And I was just, I mean, my mouth just hung open. Like this guy knows that this guy is completely innocent of this crime. And yet he's so definitive about it. Like, oh, I remember his jawline and, you know, and, and I'm like, what a piece of crap. I mean, like, you know. Yeah, right. You picked is- him out of a lineup knowing that yeah. he did it. Yeah. It's stunning. Exactly. It's stunning. Now, did he did he have information that this was who that they were zeroing in? I had to have at some point. I mean, he had you to You would have. think so. We just don't know definitively. So many, mm-hmm. you know, there's almost nobody who was in the room who's still alive. And mm-hmm. we, we just, we don't know. But I, I assume he was coached. I thought I was going to hear like him say, well, you know, I'm not really sure it could have been, you know, that, I mean, if you have any shred of decency. Yeah, but no, he was like, it was number three. (laughs) There's the guy, number, number three. I mean, not only did, you know, he he shoot his pregnant wife, but to to pin somebody else, you know, and just knowing that this guy is going to be, I mean, this is terrible. This guy could get the, I mean, who knows what could happen? They didn't have death penalty in Massachusetts at that time, did they? I don't think. No, uh, but, I think yeah, but talking about it. Yeah, you know, he but was he a was, true psychopath. He really was. Yeah. 
that was shocking to me. <laughs> I was like, I'm like, wait a minute, let me listen to that again. What did he say? I Even don't knowing know. as much as I knew about the story, to hear that tape, which of course we couldn't get back in like 1990, but to to hear that tape when we got it was just jaw dropping. Oh God, yes, exactly. It's like it's so thing, you know, that, Yeah, very much so. There was a lot of details. I didn't know or didn't remember about this case. Uh, I even got surprised a couple of times thinking, oh, yeah, I forgot about that part. Did anything catch you by surprise? Uh, because you were involved in it at the time that you had forgotten about or that had like. Yeah, this, and it, wasn't, it wasn't something I'd forgotten about. I was uh, I was very surprised. But to find out that 33 people knew that he'd done it, that was just staggering to me. Never would have guessed it was anywhere near that many. I know that this is also tied to the documentary on uh, it's on HBO, that there's video as well, because there was a, a, a television series or something that was video yes. at the time that happened, which is also also another thing that you don't expect, correct? <laughs> well, there was a show I, I remember well called Rescue 911, and they used to go around the country and follow first responders around for a night. So that night, they happened to be... In, in an ambulance and, you know, in a Boston, with, traveling with a Boston EMS unit. And they're with them when they get the call for the Stuart shooting and they're right there at the scene and they shot yeah. everything. There's video of them, you know, in the car. It's just, yeah, it's, it's very chilling to, to see you know, all of that. Yes. But uh, I didn't, I didn't remember that. I really didn't remember that part for some reason. Maybe I blocked it because it's just, it's, it's a little bit disturbing, you know, uh, but wow. I mean, this guy, Pretty much did everything wrong, if you think <laughs> did everything wrong, and even the stuff that you would never expect. And it's always surprising to me how they don't think that it's going to, I don't think that they believe or even fathom that it's going to become such a big story, that it's going to be reported yes. so widely, you know, like it'll be, oh gosh, another terrible murder, da da da, we had the funeral, the end, right? And it didn't turn out that way at all for him. There's this I mean, mythology that criminals are smart, they aren't necessarily. And the other thing about them is they can't keep their mouth shut. They all tell somebody who tells somebody who tells somebody. Oh, this, this guy, how, how many people was he kind of trying to get him to help him? Even yeah, he asked, he asked at least a couple of people to help him before the fact. And uh, and then after it happened, you know, his yeah. brother knows and his brother takes his girlfriend to breakfast and tells her and she tells you know, people yeah. and so on. Wow. It's a really compelling story. It's very uh, bingeable, as the kids say these days. Uh, but, it, but, I, but I highly recommend to listeners to check it out because believe me, you will, if you haven't heard this story before, you haven't heard about this case, you'll definitely be like, what? How come I didn't hear about this case? But even if you did, I feel like you have done such a great detailed um, and all the nuances of as, as well, like just what was going on in the city at that time and, and pre to that time. Um, and how it all kind of unfolded and why it, it is an important story. I understand why it stayed with you, you know, even when other things were happening over the years, because I feel like it's a really important story for people to un not even just know, but to understand. And I think that's what this uh, podcast does very well, is it really explains all of that from different perspectives that I think help us to kind of grasp what a big story it was. Yeah, thanks. I don't know whose idea this was to interview the hairdresser, the guy that was his hairdresser. <laughs> yes. That is so genius because think about it. Hairdressers know everything, right? They, they really do. Just, they don't even just the gossip, but I really feel like they have this insight into human nature because they deal with so many people. 
And yes. this guy really had a peg on on uh, Charles Stewart and said, yeah, this guy was I was I got pissed off. Like, what the hell? Like, dude, like I was trying to be pathetic. You're just over here. Like, can you cover my gray? You know, I'm like, and, and he was a, he was a great interview. So whose idea was that? Or how did you even know to interview the, the hairdresser? I'm not sure how we found the hairdresser. I believe he had spoken to the grand jury. I, I think he was called in front of the grand jury for some reason. And that's how we got to Will Zacco. But he is definitely one of the uh, most colorful characters in the podcast. Glad yeah. we talked to him. Very well spoken. He really had insight into just, and that was one of the things I was kind of looking for in the podcast because I didn't think we couldn't get a lot about Charles Tudor because he didn't go through a trial and all of this kind of stuff where we could see what is he going to say? What is his, you know, his story or his motivation or his defense or whatever? We didn't get any of that. So I always want to, try to find out a little bit more about the perpetrator. What could we know? So this was one way, you know, the people around him, of course. And uh, and this guy is being like a, a, a neutral observer. But now I'm like, now, you know, what? I think I'm going to start talking to hairdressers. And see. They, must have <laughs> they have to. Hairdressers know everything. <laughs> yeah, shout out to all the hairdressers out there, man. And yeah, you definitely, if you have any juicy stuff, let us know, okay? <laughs> Reach out. So. Uh, so tell us where people can uh, find Mur Murder in Boston, where they can listen. Um, and I will also put up any links that you want to share in the show notes as well. Yeah, you can find it anywhere you get podcasts. It's uh, Murder in Boston. It's on Apple Podcasts. It's on Spotify. It's everywhere. Great. Thank you so much, Adrian. It was Easy so nice fun. talking to you. This is definitely you know one of, one of the podcasts I think people really should make sure they, that they listen to this year for sure. And uh, good luck with everything going forward. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Once again, I'd like to thank my guest, Adrian Walker, for being on today's show. You can listen to the Murder in Boston podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and everywhere you get your podcasts. You can also watch the documentary series on HBO Max. I've included links in the show notes. Once Upon a Crime is written and produced by me, Esther Sanchez Ludlow. My executive producer is Lorena Garcia. CrimeCon 24 in Nashville, Tennessee is coming up soon. Make sure to secure your tickets and stop by Podcast Road to meet me from May 31st to June 2nd. Go to CrimeCon.com to register and use my discount code once to get 10% off your registration. And I'll see you in Nashville. Until next time, be good to one another.